I would invite you to find uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, and we're going to get to that text in just a moment. We are, as you uh, hopefully know, we are laying the groundwork for a study that we're going to be looking at, specifically the life of David. But in order to understand David, I think we have to know a little bit about what uh, preceded him and what kind of situation he was going to be uh, coming into his leadership role in and how things were going to be working out for David, especially early on um, in just a chapter or so when we get to that. We want to understand what is leading up to David and why he is such an important person in not just the Old Testament, but in all of Scripture. But we're going today look at 1 Samuel chapter 15. And as we get ready to think about this chapter together, one of the things that I have been thinking a lot about lately, and what got me thinking about this was really when I started to study, not, not even the life of David yet, but just the life of, of Samuel. And I started thinking about what I just jokingly said a minute ago was, you know, somebody in leadership admitting that they were wrong is that for Samuel to stand up in a public place and to invite criticism and invite input into his years of service to the people of Israel because he wanted to make it right. He wanted to end his ministry well. That speaks loudly to the fact that Samuel was a man of integrity. And this idea of integrity has been just really on my mind a lot lately, and partly, I guess, as an American living in our current culture, integrity seems to be getting very difficult to find. And so this idea of integrity is something that I think we need to pay very careful attention to, especially as believers who are called to be men and women that are people of integrity. Well, Samuel, I believe, serves for us as an example of integrity, but today we are going to look at 1 Samuel 15 through a lens that is the opposite, and that is we're going to see an example of a man who blatantly lacks integrity. And what does that look like? How do we recognize not just the lack of integrity in other people, but I want you to think this morning with me, how can I look into my own heart and life and maybe see glimpses in my own soul of maybe where I lack integrity. Now, when we arrive at 1 Samuel 15, the exact time frame for this chapter is nebulous. We don't know, we don't know exactly how long Saul has been king, but what we do know is that Saul has been king long enough to already make a mistake, a very egregious sinful action in chapter 13. Now, you don't have to turn there. We did not study this chapter, but I want you to just think for just a moment about 1 Samuel 13 and some of the foolish decisions that King Saul made in that chapter, understanding that Saul was the king that was anointed by Samuel because the people of Israel demanded to have for themselves a king for the purpose of being like all the other nations. And so in 1 Samuel 13, we find these words where Samuel speaking to the king, and he said, you acted foolishly. You have not kept the commands the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. 
Now, what is interesting to me is it's often, when, oftentimes when you think about the people in Scripture and we read verses like those couple of verses we just read, and we know Saul's life, if you know the Old Testament even a little bit, you're probably familiar with Saul. You're probably familiar with at least some of his major uh, failures and some of his behaviors that are going to come up later. But put yourself in Saul's frame of reference for just a moment. And we often do this even in the New Testament with like, for instance, the disciples, when Jesus would say that he was going to be crucified and then rise again three days later, it was almost as if the disciples looked at each other and went, eh, okay, and went on with life. And so when Saul says this, or he hears these words coming to him from Samuel, that your kingdom was going to last forever, but now it isn't, and there is somebody who's going to be raised up by God after you, who is a man after God's own heart. And in fact, in 1 Samuel 15, Sam is going to tell Saul, he's better than you. That's, that's a wonderful thing to hear from a prophet. Now, as we enter into chapter 15, we also want to keep one more, actually two more things in mind. Number one, we have to remember that while Saul has been named king, he is now the civic leader over the nation of Israel. He is now their king, which Saul, Samuel had been the judge and prophet. Samuel is now still serving as prophet. He is still a spokesperson for God within the kingdom, and he is still playing a very important role, even though he is no longer in kind of the civic leadership position that he had been in before. Secondly, and arguably more importantly, I want you to understand something very, very, very important about chapter 15. If you are here this morning and maybe you are new to the Bible, maybe you're new to the Old Testament in particular, um, maybe you've only been in church a handful of times, and maybe you've never read through the entire Old Testament, maybe you've never been exposed to books like 1 Samuel, I, I want to put a little bit of an asterisk beside the first three verses of this chapter, and I want you to read them with me carefully in a moment when we read them, and then please do me a favor and stick around for me to explain to you why this is there. Because if this is new to you, and I read through these verses, I think if it was new to me, I would be a little startled about what we're going to find in these first three verses. And so as I read them, read along with me, and then if you would, um, don't check out mentally. Hang on and let me explain these verses and put them in their context for you a little bit this morning. And if you're watching online, let me invite you to please do the same. Look at verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, again, Samuel serving as a prophet, a proclaimer of truth. The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. He puts it in this context. Look, I've already, by God's design, by God's calling, I have, I'm the one, humanly speaking, that God has used to anoint you as king over all of these people. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Now, pause there for just a moment. Understanding there is a very big difference between the way Samuel, an Old Testament prophet, was receiving truth from God than what the way in which we receive truth. As a prophet, understanding that the scriptures were in the process of being written, 
Okay, in other words, Samuel did not have a completed Bible yet. He had the Pentateuch. He had very little by way of revealed revelation in written scripture that was God-breathed. Samuel, as an Old Testament prophet, would get a message from God and his responsibility as this prophet. We always think about prophecy as somebody who predicts the future. That, that's true, but primarily they were proclaimers of current truth. They were much more like preachers. But in this case, he is now receiving a message directly from God. And when he says, I want you to listen to the words of the Lord, this is something coming directly from God to King Saul. Watch what he says. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, literally the Lord of armies, by the way. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now, hit the pause button again. What did they do to them? What happened? Notice the historical context of this group, Amalek, the Amalekites, that this goes all the way back to the Exodus generation. In fact, what we find out about them is found in Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. And let me just read for you briefly a few of these verses to put this event in its historical context. The text tells us that Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now, this is the account, if you know this one, where Moses, when he would hold up his hands, that Israel would prevail, but in the times when his arms would fall, they would suffer loss. And so the people come and lift up Moses' hands. But later in that chapter, verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar, altar and called it uh, and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. In Deuteronomy, much later, when Moses is writing his final treatise to the people of Israel, he records again, Deuteronomy chapter 25, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind and did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all of your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God has given you, for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. This goes back way before Saul was king. This goes back to a time when Moses was leading the people of God out of Egypt that the Amalekites attacked Israel. And God tells them there is coming a day that this group of people, the Amalekites, are going to face God's judgment and they are going to be erased. Wow. Notice what happens. Verse 3. Here's the commandment. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, child and infant, 
ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Put yourself in Saul's shoes for a moment. Now let's understand what this is talking about. Notice, by the way, this, the word, I'm reading from the ESV this morning, it says, devote them to destruction. This was a word in Hebrew, the word is harem. It's often thought of as holy war. And this was given a responsibility in which when God was holding a people accountable under the strictest of judgment, people like, by the way, this was applicable to Jericho in the book of Joshua, that when there had been an egregious act against the people of God, there were times in the Old Testament age in which God would place, not many times, but in certain occasions, God would place them under this harem, this idea of holy war. The picture was that under God's judgment, they were then to face the consequences of their sin, particularly sin against his people. Now, let's pause there for a moment and think about this for a second. We have to first and primarily keep in mind where we sit in redemption history. Right now, as we are looking at under the Old Testament age, under the Old Covenant, God's covenant was with a people, it was with a nation, it was with the nation of Israel. As God's chosen people, they were called to be distinct from the world around them. They were supposed to stand out as a peculiar people for the purpose of living holy lives so that the nations around them would see the God of Israel and they would repent of their sin and they would by faith, salvation has always been by faith, that they would by faith believe in the God of Israel. This relationship between God and Israel is a unique relationship. Hear me, there is no nation today that has a responsibility of carrying out this idea of holy war. Yes, there are times, unfortunately, because we live in a sinful world, that military action becomes a reality. I understand that. We don't live in a perfect world. Governments have been given the right to protect their citizens, and there are times that war becomes a horrific necessary thing in our world. But this idea of Israel carrying out judgment on behalf of God over these people was unique to this time. It is a, in a sense, transitional time in salvation history that God is showing to the world around them that he is a holy, righteous God who does, in fact, bring consequences to those who egregiously sin against them. I want you to also notice, by the way, that this judgment against the Amalekites is called for generations later. To me, what we find there is a sense of God's mercy and grace of giving this group of people an opportunity to repent of their sinfulness and gives them an opportunity to, again, take responsibility for what they have done. 
So we want to keep this commandment in its context. Now, I don't know about you, and we'll talk about this in just a moment, because we're going to be looking, by the way, at indicators where we lack integrity. That's where we're going to be studying in this chapter this morning. I don't know about you, but when I think about the New Testament commandments that I am living under and you are living under as New Testament believers, I'm very thankful I don't have a commandment like this, aren't you? But notice, by the way, one more thing about this. Think about who Saul is for a second. He is this tall, handsome, wonderful military man. Humanly speaking, he has all the wherewithal to carry out this commandment. Notice what happens. Verse 3, or excuse me, verse 4. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim. 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. Okay, pause there for another moment. This number is debated. So if you're, if you're doing the math, you've got a 210,000-man army that Saul has at his disposal. There is some de debate about this number. Some people take the word thousand and they use it to believe it is a reference to a military group. And so in other words, this is 200 units of men from Israel from the north and 10 units from Judah from the south. Others, myself included, would see this as a number of an actual 210,000 man army that Saul has to go out and to carry this commandment out. The reason I would argue this is a literal number is because I believe the writer here is showing to us there is absolutely categorically no reason that Saul cannot obey what God has asked him to do. Think about it. Saul, you are to place the Amalekites under the ban. You are to kill them all. Notice what happens. Verse 5. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley... Then Saul said to the Kenites, now there's this other group of people that happen to be hanging around in the same area, the Kenites. They're a smaller nomadic tribe. By the way, this is the tribe from which Moses' father-in-law Jethro came from. So when Saul comes to the valley, the Kenites are there, and he says to them, go depart, go from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. Okay, get away from here, it's getting ready to get really ugly going to get nasty. You guys need to get out of here. Why? Well, for you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So they were in the same historical context. The Amalekites attacked Israel. The Kenites, this group of people, actually had shown them grace and mercy. So the Kenites departed from the Amalekites. I point that out because, again, to be painfully redundant, this is a specific commandment against this particular group of people for their egregious act against the nation of Israel, the Old Testament nation of Israel. Verse 7, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Hivilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword 
But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to the ban, to destruction. One other aspect about the ban was this. If a group of people was placed under harem, they were to be completely annihilated. No one, the king, the army, the people, no one was to benefit from this. This was an act of God's holy judgment and purification This was an issue of eliminating what God had judged against. They were to leave nothing or no one alive under the ban. So let me ask you this. What's our first sign here that Saul lacks integrity? Well, the first sign is very simply, he is disobedient. He blatantly disregarded God's commandment. Again, when I think through the commandments that we are living under as New Testament believers, and we gripe and complain about obeying God and thinking what God has asked us to do, I'm thankful that I wasn't in Saul's army that day. But when we think about, as New Testament believers, what God has asked us to do, let me ask you this question in regard to your own integrity. When you hear the commandments of God, how do you treat them? Do you treat them flippantly? Do you treat them as optional? Do you treat them as, I will obey them when they are convenient? Or do you see the commandments given by God as something to be obeyed? something to be followed. Well, you know, pastor, obedience is hard sometimes. That's hard. Yes, it is difficult at times to do the right thing. I understand that. But on the scope of matters, when you look at the command that Saul was given and we would judge, well, Saul, you know, just disobeyed God. Well, how much more often do we also fail to obey the clear commandments of Scripture? If you are sitting here this morning and you are under the impression that you can choose when to obey God and not, you lack integrity. If you are purposefully looking at a God-given commandment to you and living in outright disregard for that, you lack integrity. And we sang about grace, and God's grace is true, and God's grace forgives us of our sin. That is also true. But it's also true, as the Apostle Paul said, that we do not presume upon the grace of God and blatantly sin and reject God's clear commandments. That's what Saul did. He was a man who lacked integrity. This text gets a little more interesting because we have another word to wrestle with here in the next verse. Notice verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Now we have this interesting word, 
regret. What does this mean? Well, this is a Hebrew word for, it's, it's nechem in, in Hebrew. It is used 108 times in the Old Testament. Curiously, it occurs four times in 1 Samuel 15. Here in verse 11, it happens twice in verse 29, and it also occurs again in verse 35. This word, nechem, is only used twice in the Old Testament in direct reference to God. It is used here that God has regretted that he has made Saul king. It also occurs in Genesis 6, verse 7, that says, And the Lord said, I will wipe off the face of the earth man and woman I created together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Well, what does this mean? The word regret, nechem in Hebrew, means to be sorry, to repent, to regret, as translated in the ESV, or to change one's mind. In both cases where this verb is used in conjunction with God, people made blatantly sinful choices to categorically disobey God's clear commandments. We want to understand very clearly that God's sovereignty in his sovereignty, he fully foreknew these failures. But I want you to see here that what this word regret, and I'll, I'll defend this more particularly in just a moment, this word regret in verse 11 is in a sense capturing an emotional element of this word. When we think about God, we think about the fact that we are created in the image of God. We are created with emotions. We are created with a, an ability to have this sense of regret. The idea here is not, it is not an acknowledgement of a mistake. That is not the word. The picture is this grieving, and I, I stumble with this because how do you explain God in human terms? But it is this grieving in the heart of God that we're going to see in just a moment in Samuel's heart too. Now, I love it when Scripture helps us understand what Scripture is saying and what it isn't saying. And in verse 29, if you can read there, depending on which version you're reading in, in the ESV version, it continues to use the word regret in order to be consistent through the translation. I'm going to read it from a different translation because I think there, the, this one captures the idea of verse 29. Where it says, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. For he is not a human being that should change his mind. This is not saying, I wish I hadn't made Saul king and I wish I could go back and change my mind. It is this picture of, in a sense, grieving over Saul's sin. Much like God grieved over the sin of of mankind. Now notice Samuel's reaction back to verse 11. And Samuel was angry. I believe righteous anger. And he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Wait a minute. So Saul's first activity is to go 
and to build a monument to whom? Himself. Why did he bring the king back? Trophy of war. Look at what I did. I'm the, I am so gifted in my military affairs. I have defeated these people. And now here is the king in absolute humiliation. And as if, it, as if that isn't enough, he goes and builds to himself this wonderful, majestic monument to King Saul. And here we have a second ingredient, if you will, for a lack of integrity, and that is prideful self-promotion. What is painfully missing so far in this account is there is no word from Saul about glorifying God. And we'll see this in just a moment. Saul can talk a very good religious talk. He just doesn't bother to believe it. And so here he is now building for himself this monument. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul, I love this. I love this next part of this text. If, if it wasn't so sad, it would be funny. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I have obeyed. Samuel said to him, I can't imagine the tone of voice that Samuel used. I can only imagine the tone of voice that I would use, and I'm not arguing this with Samuel's tone of voice. But Samuel said, um, then what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. Well, who's they? Well, the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and to, and, to rest, and to the rest we have devoted to destruction, the worthless stuff. The stuff that wasn't worth anything, we have committed that to the band, but the people. We see another very key ingredient to people who lack integrity, and that is blame shifting. Oh, this wasn't me. I, I had nothing to do with it. By the way, the text made it very clear that it was Saul who did this. And yet he conveniently says, it is the people that you have given to me. And by the way, if things rise and fall on leadership, Saul, you are the leader. And the minute that someone, if they had violated God's commandment, why did you not hold them accountable for that? Oh, it gets worse. Because not only does he practice blame shifting, but notice a fourth mark of someone who lacks integrity. He now justifies his disobedience. Oh, the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. Why? To sacrifice to the Lord. We brought them back because we knew that we had to offer a sacrifice. I think we have a very real window into Saul's soul right here, do we not? What's his priority? I mean, I would argue that if his priority was truly to bring honor and glory to God, if his priority was truly to sacrifice to God, he would have built an altar and he would have been in the practice of worship. He would have been presenting these animals as a sacrifice to God if it was truly about God. Instead, what is Saul doing? 
building a monument to himself. People who lack integrity justify their sin. I don't mean justification there in a salvation sense. I mean it in a justification as in I am making an excuse for what I have done. But don't miss this either. It gets even worse. I, we brought this back to sacrifice to the Lord. What's the next word? Your God. Not my God. Not our God. Your God. This is false piety. This is hypocrisy. This is another lack of integrity. Is people who talk a good language about being someone who is faithful to God and someone who loves God. And we spared these animals because we wanted to come back and we wanted to worship and we wanted to offer a sacrifice. And it's almost like off the tip of his tongue, it just comes out. Well, you know, Samuel, we brought these back because we wanted to sacrifice to your God. Not mine. I don't believe any of this stuff. This is your God. I'm just doing it because I'm supposed to. By the way, he says this multiple times. I brought them to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest, all the junk, the worthless stuff. Well, we obeyed in that regard. Notice verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. Just let that sit for a moment. I don't know how Saul said this word either. But I can't imagine it was very subtle. Saul, just stop it. Just stop. What you're saying is a lie. What you're saying is you are demonstrating that, in fact, you are not fit to be king. You are not a person of integrity. You are not a person who is obedient to God. And notice the results of this. And he says, stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Yes, Samuel was the one who had done the anointing from a human perspective, but it was from the hand of God. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction, harem, the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Ah, verse 20 should make you scratch your head. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Really? I guess it's like the old saying, you know, in the old parenting classes, your children should obey immediately, sweetly, and completely. Take out the trash. I went over and I touched the trash can and went and sat back down on the couch. I obeyed. No, you didn't. It's still in the house. It's not by the side of the street. Notice he even, he even condemns himself, by the way. He says, I have brought back Agag the king. 
I brought him back. He can't even blame the people this time. Um, I did it. I brought the king of Amalek back, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, those horrible people, took the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord, what? Your God. Samuel now has a little instruction. By, by the way, I will get to that in a moment. I'll come back to that. Notice now Samuel's instruction. He says, Is the Lord as great delight, as the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. In other words, he's not condemning the sacrificial system. He's not saying that the sacrificial system could be done away with. What he is saying is that you can do an empty sacrifice without a heart of obedience. You could be here this morning out of an absolute routine, checking it off your list of things to do, and have no heart to obey God, none. And he says, it's better to obey than to sacrifice. You would have been better to do the right thing than to come back and to actually sacrifice all of the animals you claimed were for the purpose of sacrifice. Well, why? Well, Saul, verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Makes you wonder what's Saul's motive here. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people. Oh, it gets even worse. Here's an excuse for you. Well, my real problem was I was afraid of the people. Now, what ought to be ringing in your ear as it was in mine is the very simple text of Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So Samuel is listening to the king as he is just condemning himself again and again and again. My real problem is I have a fear of man. I'm fearful of the people that I am supposed to be the one leading. And I obeyed their voice. I thought you were the leader. I thought you were in charge. What kind of king are you? Notice now he gets a little desperate. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. Get the picture. In my, in my sanctified imagination, by this point, Saul is on his knees begging, please forgive me and come back with me. Now, that's a very telling statement in and of itself. Why would he want Samuel to go back with him? He's got to save face, does he not? If he comes back without the prophet and the prophet of God has given him this message and Samuel is not there to kind of ease things over, then he knows he's in big trouble. 
So he reaches out and he tears the robe of Samuel. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Wow. And also the glory of Israel, we've read verse 29 already, does not lie. Once again, Saul, verse 30, says that I have sinned. Verse 31, somehow he convinces Samuel to go back after Saul, with Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring here to me King Agag of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. It's worked out pretty well for the king. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. The prophet of God is here. I'm okay. And Samuel said to him, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went back to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. As we end this text, I want you to look at a final ingredient here, if you will, of those that lack integrity. We're all the way up to number seven, and that is denial. An absolute refusal to take personal responsibility. There's religious language in here, sure. He talks about making sacrifices. He talks about, I'm sorry, I've sinned. But really, what this is all about for Saul is to protect himself. Because he can't lose the support of the people. He can't lose the support of Samuel. And so in his mind, again, the words again and again and again throughout this text is, well, you know, I was going to sacrifice to your God. There was no personal relationship between Saul and God. I wonder why we would question if Saul would be a person of integrity when he has no intimate personal relationship with the creator, with the one who had anointed him king. And it brings me to our conclusion this morning in asking about our own integrity. And if you're here this morning and maybe integrity is an idea that you categorically are just not concerned about, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. I come to church, I do my thing. Maybe your parents made you come this morning. Maybe it's something that you do because you feel like you have to. Maybe it's just this ritualistic routine that you have fallen into. And it might very well be that you don't actually have a true, genuine relationship with your creator. It may be that it's just you believe religion's a good thing. Or that religion can save you from your sin. And in the Old Testament, they had sacrifices. They did sacrifice animals on altars. And the purpose was to point to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself, who would take away the sins of the world. That's why on this side of the cross, we don't sacrifice animals anymore because Jesus died once and made redemption available to you. 
So if you're here this morning and you've never accepted Christ, you've never put your faith in Christ alone for salvation and you lack integrity, it might very well be it's because you don't have a relationship with your creator. Now, I know most of you, I don't know all of you, but I know most of you are believers in Christ. So my question for you is, in what area of your life are you delinquent when it comes to the issue of integrity? Are you a person that ignores God's commandments? Are you one that falls into these other traps of self-promotion? You're arrogant. You think the world revolves around you? Are you someone who's categorically committed to blame shifting, never take responsibility for anything? It's always somebody else's fault? Are you a person that just simply justifies your behavior? Well, yeah, I did that, but I'm sure if you were in those circumstances, you would have done that too. Maybe more dangerously, are you a hypocrite? We're all hypocritical to some degree because we're imperfect, but are you pretending to be something you have no intention of being? Is religion just false piety to you? Are you living in such a way that you are just rejecting the idea of taking any level of personal responsibility? Integrity matters. Our country needs people of integrity. The church needs people of integrity. Because when we lack integrity, the way King Saul lacked integrity, and by the way, became like all the other kings of the nations around him, there's no difference. Israel lost their ability to be sought and light in the world. And my dear friend, if you are a person who claims Christ and you do not live with integrity, you're losing your testimony. And when we as a church, I'm not saying we are, but when we as a church lose our integrity, we lose the opportunity to be effective ministers and effective witnesses for the gospel. Integrity matters. Why? Well, when we lack integrity, it leads to sinful choices that produce destructive consequences like it did for King Saul. Be a person of integrity so that you have the opportunity to bring all glory and praise to your almighty God. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for this time together around this text. Pray that you would press upon our hearts this morning what integrity is and how it is important. And we have a picture here of what it looks like in the life of a man who did not have integrity. And God, may we be men and women, boys and girls that are faithful and how we live, we know we're far from perfect, but may we be people that are truly committed to the gospel and living always in a way that brings glory to your name. If there's someone here this morning that's not, that is not sure of their salvation, I pray that before they leave, they may find someone to talk to and get their answers about the Bible and about Jesus Christ answered. And Lord, we pray that you would work in hearts of believers this morning too to draw us closer to you, to repent where we are failing in this area of integrity so that we can be salt and light for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we run, we have someone coming today for church membership. I want to invite 
um, Shannon here to the front. You're going to join me up here. Good morning to you. This is Shannon. Uh, Shannon is uh, relatively new to the area here in Wilmington, and uh, she has been interested in church membership. And so I have heard her testimony of faith. She knows Christ as her Savior. She has also been um, baptized by immersion, and she's very excited about being a part of the body of Christ here at Grace. And so I am presenting to her, presenting her to you today for church membership. So do I have a motion to receive her into fellowship? I got a motion before I was even finished saying that. I have a motion. Do I have a second? The second was a little shady, but we got a second in there. Um, all those in favor, say amen. amen. Anyone opposed? So ordered. Shannon, welcome to the body here at Grace. We're so glad to have you here in our church, and we look forward to see what God does in you and through you here in our body. Um, Shannon's going to stay here, if that's okay, for a moment, unless you have to run off. Um, and if you want to come by, just give her a quick hello. I know she would greatly appreciate that. So let's stand together and we've already prayed so you are dismissed. Have a wonderful day.